Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Where are you? Anyway, you've been traveling a fair well, amount. Are well, you in back home, McMaster? Yeah, McMaster. Yeah, all good. back running yeah. the complaint department as chair. That's all it is. That's all it is. So, uh, <laughs> cheers, and uh, we have some special guests, and you're all going to get these very, very uh, elegant uh, Ortho Joe uh, mugs as uh, as a, uh, a reward for participating in this uh, discussion. Uh, and uh, Mo and I have a. Three special guests this morning who have uh, done a, a yeoman's effort in not only in a very large NIH-sponsored grant, but also in uh, leading a conference that took place in the fall of uh, 2021 uh, at uh, the Academy headquarters on the use of administrative data sets as well as registries uh, in orthopedics research. And I was particularly interested in, in this uh, particularly on the administrative data set side as the editor of the journal, because we're seeing increasing numbers of these submissions. And I know uh, uh, Mo, you at uh, uh, OE have uh, had some thoughts about uh, the use of these administrative data sets as well as registries, but uh, let me just uh, introduce the, the three experts. We have uh, three that need no introduction from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Dan Berry, Dr. Dave Llewellyn, and Dr. Halal Premers who uh, have participated also in this in the grant, but uh, most importantly in this meeting, which will be coming out uh, as a supplement in the journal very, very soon, I think within the next couple of weeks, and will be available to the world's orthopedic community to offer sage advice on the optimum way to use these data sets, the do's and don'ts of both registry research as well as administrative data sets. So, let me just uh, start, uh, if I if I may, Mo. If I and I know you'll jump in with questions, but let me just ask uh, uh, Dan and Dave uh, and uh, and Halal. You started uh, down this path with a P thirty two grant. Can you uh, just one of you give us uh, the reasons why you you went this pathway uh, in arthroplasty research? I can very briefly just mention, so it's an NIHP 30 grant that we were lucky to receive, mm -hmm. and the it's a center grant, which uh, was designed essentially to try to improve both infrastructure, national infrastructure, as well as methodology in joint arthroplasty research. I mean, there's a tremendous amount published in joint arthroplasty. Some of the research is outstanding. Some of it not as outstanding, and there tends to be a lot of uh, level four trial, uh, level four uh, research published. It's valuable, as we know, as observational research, but we think that the arthroplasty community is doing more than a million arthroplasties a year in the U.S. can do better. So that's the uh, effort of the grant, uh, essentially. Right. And can you just point out from your perspective as uh, world-renowned researchers, what, what are the issues that you have seen with administrative data set uh, research? Dave, well, what, are, what are the important problems there. Yeah, so let me just take a stab at that, uh, Mark, because it, it really relates to the genesis of the grant as well. Um, there's been a tremendous amount of progress over the last 10 or 15 years in the development of these very, very large data sets. They've taken the form of uh, large administrative data sets that have been available for research in various ways, and then also the National Registry effort here in the U.S., 
um, really emulating what occurred, of course, uh, overseas uh, in other national registries and earlier uh, some institutional registries, including our own. As the amount of data available has increased, there's been a bit of a lag in our ability to digest it, if you will, and use it in a manner that helps reach valid and meaningful conclusion. And I think it was really through our involvement, Dan and I, with the American Joint Replacement Registry and realizing we were getting to the point of success, quote unquote, with real data, that that's when the real trouble starts, because we have to figure out how to access it, which data points we can rely on, which ones we can't, how do we improve in a continuous way moving forward, because it's a never-ending journey, and hopefully expand the amount of data that we can access. And then along the way, the technology available has galloped at a rapid rate, hard to keep up with, actually. Capabilities at mining large data sets, analyzing these with natural language processing tools and AI. And um, it's, it's a dynamic area, but one that I really think justifies a lot of attention and resources and is emer an emerging subset of orthopedic research, or really a discipline all in, of, of its own, I think. One thing I might just add, uh, Mark and Mo, is just that, uh, you know, the genesis of this workshop, to give credit where it's due, was partly Mark, partly John Callahan and some discussions we all had together recognizing that the very accessibility of data, these huge data sets, is sort of an invitation for misuse or uh, abuse of the data in a certain way. And uh, what we've learned is that there's a very easy ability for people to conflate things that are, come out of big data as causality when they're in fact associations between pieces of data. So there's that piece. And then there's also the problem that when you get a big enough data set, almost everything's statistically significant, but whether it's clinically significant or whether there's actually a causal effect is, is a lot harder to figure out. And as you as editors uh, see all this, it's important that your reviewers understand some of the potential pitfalls of the data. And it's important that the researchers themselves, before they start doing it, understand the pitfalls. And of course, it's important that the readers, when they read it, understand some of the potential pitfalls. So that was sort of the genesis of this. And Mark, you and John Callahan really deserve a lot of the credit for kind of stimulating us to, to put this together. It's, it's interesting to me, too, to hear this, because I mean, I was involved in some of the early discussions, uh, both Dan, uh, Dave, and Halal. But the thing that um, it just amazed me is the amount of organizational effort it would have taken to, you know, to move this, move this very large program forward. And I wonder from your perspective, you know, you always put, you know, you, you always put together a vision and you have a thoughtful vision about where you'd like to go. What's been some of the big surprises for you in doing this? Uh, things that you, you know, maybe came along as unexpected insights from doing this. And if you had to do it again, what things might you think differently about? I'll give you a couple of them. First of all, you're right. It is a big job whenever you put together a pretty big group, but uh, we were lucky that basically everyone we asked agreed to do it. There's national and international experts that we have in this workshop that uh, those that read it will uh, come across. But it is kind of interesting to, to see some of the things that you didn't expect to come out of a workshop come out of a workshop. So you asked a great question. I'll give you two briefly, Dave and Hillel might have some others. One of them, was an understanding that we all look to Medicare data sets as a data set which we can rely on, that's sort of a standard data set. We all thought that that was. And then there's this understanding suddenly that Medicare Advantage uh, is 
becoming a bigger and bigger part of Medicare payment. And yet the Medicare Advantage patients aren't in the Medicare data sets that, as they exist standardly. So suddenly a subset of patients that's quite different than the rest of the Medicare group socioeconomically is getting pulled out of the data. So that that's, was an important understanding. The second one that might even be more relevant to Mark's life is the understanding, and I give John Callahan credit on this one as well, that using these big data sets to examine new technology is fraught with a number of perils that are so severe that it makes it almost impossible to do it well. And they involve selection bias, they involve who's got access to data, they involve reporting bias, they involve so many biases that when you try to, for example, understand uh, whether or not robotic total knee arthroplasty is doing better than standard total knee arthroplasty in a big administrative data set, good luck. You're probably going to get fooled uh, by a hundred different reasons that you can't really look at it carefully and accurately. So those are just a couple I thought I thought might be interesting. Yeah, I, I, those are great ones, Dan. I was really struck by those as well. But the other thing that I would say was a revelation for me was I think erroneously I was thinking in a simplistic way. I think others as well about some of these data sources as binary, you know, good or bad, reliable or not reliable, and so on. And it's much more nuanced than that because within each of these registries or data sources, you have certain data elements or pieces of information or studies or things you can do that are just top-notch, outstanding. You can take it to the bank for sure the truth and other things that are random noise really within the same registry and they don't come labeled with color codes and so you know you have to sort it out and rely on the work of others and and really sort of critical assessments of of, of kind of the, what makes registry data valuable what goes in uh, whether it's valid what percentage of it is is actually collected from those participating you know uh, whether there's embedded bias in terms of who's entering the data or not and all of those things exist really across all the registries. And so it's a very nuanced area and something where it really requires an understanding of, of what it is you can do with a particular uh, database and what you can't do as importantly. Yeah, and I will say that that's one of the things the symposium does a pretty good job of is taking the most commonly used databases and going through in a very systematic way what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what they're best for, what they're not so good for. Hillel, you might have some comments as well. Uh, the only comment to add, in addition to what you said so far, is being someone more involved with some of the multi-center studies that we are trying to pull off the ground, it's very difficult to establish teams that are more dedicated to orthopedic research because surgical research, orthopedic research is pretty unique as compared to some of the medical areas. And as we know, clinical trials are rare. And trying to make the best with observational data, not with new methods, but established methods and some of the issues with observational. So it, it is a lot of effort to trying to bring together teams, even at academic centers, because they don't exist currently. So the big picture is really trying to create a national infrastructure where more and more centers have the capacity to do these observational studies, applying state-of-the-art methodology, maybe future clinical trials as one of the bigger vision items that I hope will be possible in the years to come. I think that's really a, a, an excellent uh, comment, Dr. Kremers. And one of the things that impressed me at this meeting was the, the younger 
uh, orthopedic investigators. So, you know, I think the field, uh, particularly in arthroplasty research, is in great hands with a lot of early to mid-career uh, people very interested in this. And one of the things that I heard being discussed was the possibility of embedding clinical trials within the AJRR. Could, could you three maybe make some comments about that as a potential future? I really think it's one of the very exciting opportunities that is, is before us. It, it really began as I would call conversations years ago as we were getting the American Joint Replacement Registry going about uh, once this was created, once you had multiple institutions participating, could we do prospective trials on top of the registry data being submitted by institutions? And we actually built out the IT support or the platform for the AJRR to facilitate that, to allow for you to bolt on a research module, if you will, so that if an institution was participating in the registry, there could be incremental study data elements that would maybe only cover two or three pages of a study coordinator's book uh, and all the other stuff that you would get in a normal study, like the patient demographics, the institution, the implants, and so on. That's all in there, quote unquote, for free. And it's an easy thing to say. It's a little harder thing to pull off. And there's been a lot of work since then to try to make it occur. I'm happy to say that we're currently working on a trial effort to, to see kind of proof of concept, both to do a project that's worthwhile, but, but also to prove the concept and understand the barriers. And of course, there are barriers. And, and a lot of them are ones that, that you might guess surrounding the sharing of data. And even with consented patients, you know, problems with sending information various places. Institutions are very sensitive to this because of some of the unintended consequences of the patient protection legislation. Uh, Mo, it, you, you have uh, an abundance of it's <laughs> running clinical trials. You know, you what, know, I mean, what, I what are your thoughts about yeah, embedding into yeah. a registry? And, and we're seeing more and more. So to, you know, to Halal's point too, it's really, you know, like the work you're putting in now is going to be, you know, probably helping many, many other generations ahead of us, you know, in getting things organized. So there's a lot of that happening, right? You're planting lots of trees for others to reap the fruits of. But I can tell you, though, that the biggest challenge we've had in recent years is that as orthopedic trial networks have been looking to go larger, there's just not enough single funder availability to fund these large mega trials. And they're looking for innovative and efficient ways to run these trials. The obvious approach would be is data linkage or follow-up, which you know usually is a big chunk of the money. You can save millions of dollars on a multinational trial. So I would imagine that this is going to become like, you know, if you've got pilot work happening, I would imagine that this becomes a major, major resource for trialists uh, specifically looking to be able to make, you know, large trials feasible uh, and efficient as well. So I think that is a, going to be one of the great, great, um, you know, advances that comes from work like this. I, I wonder also, just as a broad question to everyone here is, you know, you have this very large funded project, which allows you to do this, you know, relatively complex and uh, difficult work. Sadly, as we all know, you know, to keep these things going requires considerable amount of energy and resource. Is there, is there opportunities um, like yeah, to, to be able to sustain this? And, and do you have a, a vision on how that could happen? Are there models that you'll be thinking about to sustain this? 
I might take a quick crack at it. Mo, I'm going to start with a, a comment on your first point and then go on to your second question. So you're exactly right that part of the idea of being able to create a nested trial uh, situation is that it stops everybody from having to reinvent the wheel every time they do a, a clinical trial. And it hopefully cuts down both on the development cost of the trial, but also the cost of, of actually using doing the trial. And you know all about that better than anyone, how expensive it is. So we are doing right now a sort of, if you will, a pathway blazing trial on extended antibiotic use after joint arthroplasty to try to break down each of the barriers. And there's a lot of barriers at every step of the way, just like getting the AJR up and going. This reminds me of exactly the same process. You got to go figure out all the economic hurdles, the sort of social hurdles, the legal hurdles, which are probably the most Herculean, but all of those have to be overcome. But we are overcoming them. I was just happy to speak with Nick Bedard this morning, who's heading up the trial. And it looks like we're going to get most of them solved in a way that then allows people to recapitulate that trial with another study question much more easily, much more cheaply, and much more efficiently, to your point. In terms of sustainability, the P30 Center grant is a five-year grant. We're about halfway through it right now, a little bit more. And we hope that we will reapply for an uh, extension of that grant uh, in a year or two, and hopefully get another five years and, and after that. And the idea is to keep improving the infrastructure. Now, that doesn't solve the question of how you get money for each specific study question. And that is something that you and Mark know all about. But getting the study question money is a lot more manageable if it's a manageable amount of money than if it's a $20 million chunk of money that pretty, you get a few of those over in the world, but not many. Yeah, that's great. One of the things that we haven't done very well, but there may be an opportunity to do moving forward is if we succeed at some of these nested trials to do a, a cost effectiveness analysis, you know, how much money was saved by proving a particular intervention is successful, let's say at reducing the burden of infection, that turns into real dollars. Those that are uh, paying for these services, in many cases, the government entities, then may see a value proposition, additional studies, looking at issues that we think are critical and costing a lot of money, or maybe that they suggest are critical and costing a lot of money, that they would really like to see some data surrounding uh, so they know uh, how to manage their their payer, you know, decision making. I can see a lot of visits uh, to uh, our senator's offices in your future, uh, <laughs> uh, both of you here in Minnesota. But thankfully, we have uh, I think senators and co congressmen uh, and women who understand uh, the, these issues uh, about the overall long longitudinal costs of a, a disease process. So. Uh, Dan, uh, you and uh, Dave and Halal have done a lot of work uh, on this uh, supplement. So can you just uh, tell the audience kind of as a, a closing uh, series of comments about what, what's in the supplement and how, how it might be useful to them? as individuals? Sure. I, I look at the supplement as having sort of three main parts. One is taking uh, the databases that are most commonly used in orthopedics and particularly arthroplasty research and breaking each one down and telling the researcher or the user what's in them, what they're best for, what their limitations are, if you will. So sort of a uh, a one-by-one -one look through the most commonly used databases and registries. That's number one. Number two, a very thoughtful and insightful group of papers on 
pros, cons, risks, benefits, pitfalls, advantages of using big data, how to use it, how not to use it, how to be careful as you use it, what are the ways that you should use it, what are the ways you shouldn't, what are the kinds of questions you can answer, what are the kinds of questions you can't answer. And that's, that's pretty thoughtful, and there's some really good papers in there about that topic. And then lastly, a little bit of forward-looking uh, information about what uh, both natural language processing and artificial intelligence can do to enhance in the future our ability to use big databases and big data in a way that may overcome some of the limitations currently of big databases as we use them currently. So I'd say those are the three main categories of things. And there's quite a few papers from really some of the best people in the world on each of the topics. Yeah, particularly in that last uh, section on the ability to, to mine data out of the electronic medical record was, was very exciting to hear. And, uh, and I know the quality of work since I've seen the papers and it's, it's outstanding. And congratulations uh, to, the, to the three of you on, on pulling this off. So uh, any closing comments from uh, you, Halal, or Dave? We are really excited. And one last point to emphasize is that this really is not... This effort is not just confined to Mayo Clinic. We are here to support, um, as well as our external advisory committee, to support any orthopedic investigator uh, within the United States who want, who's ready to make the effort to pursue funding for their own ideas. We are not a group to just support the Mayo Clinic investigators, but nationwide, because we hope that the capacity for re clinical research in orthopedic increases across the nation, not just a limited number of institutions. Wow, thanks for that. Dave? It's interesting to me that this process really occurred because in a way the editors and reviewers were in the frontline trenches facing this wave of new information and studies without a lot of help in terms of what to do with it that stimulated a lot of the work and this workshop. And I think that this collection of papers really will serve for a while here as, a, as an essential primer on, on studies in this area, both within specific databases and also generally for work in this area. So we're greatly indebted to, uh, to, to you, Mark, and the journal and, and all the people that help provide the support and stimulus to make it happen and to um, actually get it out in print and, and get it done. Well, thanks. Uh, Mo, any closing thoughts? You know, I'm, I'm just always struck by, you know, how we go through cycles. You know, when I started out, you know, what was big was 100 patient studies, and then big <laughs> became 1,000 patient studies, and then they became several thousand. And then we're seeing once again, you know, the AGR kind of changing with, you know, through the leadership of this group, changing what big is and what we think has been big has now become small, you know, and here we go again uh, with another kind of benchmark transition in our field in a good way. Wow. Great. Well, I want to thank the three of you for participating in Ortho Joe. You will be getting this absolutely elegant Ortho Joe travel mug, uh, which will stand you in good stead, <laughs> particularly as you're standing by a cold trout stream somewhere in the world, uh, Dan, uh, Dave, uh, and uh, they pack very lightly. So thanks, everybody, and have a great day. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the you. chance to join you. We really enjoyed it. Take care. Bye-bye.